Energy Transition Now with David Linden. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, David Linden, from Westwood Global Energy Group, uh, and you're listening to the first in a series of new Energy Transition Now podcasts. The aim of these podcasts is to discuss and explore um, what the energy transition really means for energy and specifically the oil and gas industry. In this first part or chapter of our series, we'll look at the response of the industry as a whole. And we've got the International Association of Oil and Gas Producers, IOGP, and the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, uh, OGCI, to help us with that. But to set the context around all of this, I wanted to invite someone who's not part of the industry to give, I guess, an outsider's view of sustainability, the energy transition and, and how the industry should be viewing things. And that, that very excellent individual is, is Will Day. Now, Will is a sustainability advisor uh, and amongst other things sits on or is the chair of a number of sustainability related advisory boards. He's also a, a fellow at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership or CISL, which is how I know him. Needless to say, he has an incredible impact throughout his almost 40-year career of working with NGOs and businesses on sustainable development. And he continues this by advising boards, exec teams, governments around the world, and helping to understand and identify the strategic risks and opportunities that they face as the world evolves. For clarity, though, Will is speaking to us as an independent advisor today. Will. A very warm welcome. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, David. Did I miss anything on your background at all? <laughs> no, I think that was fine. Thank you. Perfect. Perfect. Let's go back to basics then to, to kick us off for the listener. Um, could you maybe just explain to us what is sustainability as such and why is achieving it important? So sustainability is, is a useful word in some ways and not in others, because it's often misunderstood. Uh, a definition would be uh, meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs, uh, which basically means don't spoil the future for future generations. Uh, I think it often gets confused. I hear lots of people talk about sustained growth or sustainable growth, and they confuse those two things. Sustained growth is we keep growing, and sustainable growth is we recognize the boundaries uh, of over, over and unsustainable consumption. Why is it important? It's important because if we don't do that thing, we are walking down a short plank with a very long drop off it. If you look at the consequences of climate and not just not just uh, environmental issues like climate and biodiversity, but getting the social things wrong as well. Importantly, sustainability has a social ingredient, not just an environmental one. Okay, so it's not just all about carbon and carbon emissions. It isn't, although clearly that's, that's often at the forefront of the conversation because we are seeing the practical consequences of a warming planet on an hourly, let alone a daily or weekly basis. So it, it tends to draw the attention, but, but sustainable development itself is a broader idea. What are the implications for the energy industry as a whole, and not, not, not just oil and gas, but why is it we ultimately need, I guess, an energy transition? 
Well, I think one of the reasons why the sector is in the spotlight is is the fossil fuel element of energy. I think energy per se is is hugely important. We will need and have based our growth of our economies on the use and exploitation of energy. It's it's the fossil fuel element. It's the greenhouse gas part of that which is the problem. So that's why in within the energy sector, oil and gas has been and coal particularly has been the focus of attention because the science is pretty undeniable and the science says that we have over time put much more uh, carbon dioxide equivalent into the atmosphere uh, than is sustainable in the sense of a balance between temperature uh, and the and the environment so so it's important not just for the energy sector uh, you know we've got large chunks of the world's economy which also produces greenhouse gases but in some ways fossil fuel is the most easily identifiable one Okay. Okay. And and and, and you know maybe for, for the listener itself, just to sort of put it into context, you know, as you sort of said there, there are other elements or other parts of our economy you know, which are also producing carbon or inputting carbon into into our atmosphere, which is which is not helping um, with the warming of the planet. But is energy sort of the prime driver here uh, in terms of carbon emissions, or or is it? Is it concrete production or, or what are we looking at? It, it, it's, well, that's why it's kind of inconvenient because it's the whole economy, David. Actually, if you look at where those emissions come from, uh, they come, of course, they come from fossil fuel, not just the use and burning of it for heating and cooling our houses or buildings, for example. Uh, but a third, a third or so of global emissions come from land use and agriculture. So, so it's not just about moving to electric cars and, and renewable energy. It's about understanding where these emissions come from and what needs to happen to reduce, minimize them. It's one of the reasons why net zero is emerging as the only really uh, feasible objective for organizations who are in control of their emissions, such as energy users or energy producers. Okay. That's uh, interesting. Thank, you know, thanks also for bringing out that net zero idea. It, it's something that the oil and gas industry has started to focus on as an area, you know, I want to be net zero emissions, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it is, it is uh, frankly quite confusing when we've just had the Paris Agreement. They've talked about different temperatures you need to reach and uh, uh, or goals that we're setting. What, what is different about net zero? What, what does it really mean? Well, I, th- I think the reason it's there as I've suggested, is because there are chunks of our economic activity which we will find very difficult to reduce the emissions from. Um, Food production is an obvious one, which means that if we are in control of any of those things and we have alternatives, we will need to get to them as quickly as we can. The science is pretty clear. We've got about 10 years to get our uh, emissions down to pretty much zero globally. So anything which can be replaced or or transformed will need to be because we will then have to work on the difficult bits. I mean, to give you some sense of it, at the moment, we are heading for about a 3.8 degree global increase in temperature. The insurance industry has said that if we get to four degrees, the world is uninsurable. And the banks have said, if we get to four degrees and it's uninsurable, it's then unbankable because the risks become too great. So so the, the costs of not getting carbon emissions down and dramatically are are basically uh, the success or failure of the global economy. And that's a pretty high price to pay. Absolutely. 
there's an interesting point you made there, which is you've got 10 years. Um, for, for clarity, is that 10 years to get to net zero? Is that 10 years to make the right kind of action to get to net zero by, I guess, mid-century? No, no, no. Um, the science is pretty clear. My, my colleagues at the, at the British Antarctic Survey uh, tell me that we will need to get globally to net zero by the middle of the century, physically get there, and then we will have to remove carbon from the atmosphere for the rest of the century if we're going to hold the, uh, the increase to 1.5 degrees. And that's the, that's the sort of number that science says is, is kind of safe, although it's an increase on what's happening now. And, and we're already seeing the consequences in terms of climate and food production and water of the, of the existing increase, which is something over a, a degree already. So, so no, the 10 years is to get us, uh, get us down, certainly on a very steep glide path down. The science says if we can't get globally to net zero by the middle of the century, then, then you know, there's a very high price to pay. And, and of course, what, what that does David, is it means that, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the word transition in your introduction. I, I, I actually much prefer the, the word transformation. It seems to me that transition could be made to last a long time if we're not careful. And the science is pretty clear that, that we haven't got very long. We will need to transform the business. Yeah, so with, with that word transformation then in our minds here, I mean, what, what is it that oil and gas or fossil fuel businesses, but, but yeah, specifically, I guess, the oil and gas sector, there's already a lot happening on, on the coal side. W what should oil and gas be doing now to, to, well, I guess, either support or be part of that transformation? Well, I suppose the first thing is a shift in mindset, really. Um, I mean, I, it's invidious to name names, but I, I've been interested to watch BP redefine itself. We're not an international oil company. We're an integrated energy company. That feels to me like a necessary first step, which is we're not oil and gas, but we are energy because the world needs energy. How do we do that in a way which meets the other requirements of humankind and the wider kind of ecosystems that we rely upon? So, so I think the first thing is a, is a mindset. The second thing, I think, is to try and resist those siren voices that say, make this last as long as you can. You've got, you've got valuable assets you know, pinned to, uh, pinned to the, um, you know, ocean floors uh, and, and drilling rigs and, and expensive bits of kit. Let's make them last as long as we can. I, I think that is a defensive posture, which will be very hard to justify. You know, we're already seeing the legal system being used to bring cases against oil and gas producers for their historic emissions. And, and because people are saying, you have knowingly uh, caused my, a problem to me, you will now uh, be liable for that. So, so I think uh, it'll, you know, the advice is going to come not just from science, but I suspect it'll come from people's legal departments as well. What about things like um, you know, a lot of uh, companies, certainly in the last year, there's been a lot of momentum from uh, the oil and gas industry to recognize, uh, and this has been a longer term uh, point as well, but recognition that scope one and two Sort of emissions coming from operations and you know, particular things like methane leakage and uh, you know um, um, on the flaring side and you know, reducing routine flaring etc. That's been a big focus and I think will that will ramp up more as we go forward as well. I mean, what's your thoughts on those aspects? You know, the industry 
literally trying to play its part and, 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 and gaining a, a license to operate. Clearly, all activity in that area is good. Uh, th- these are, you know, polluting, um, uh, to kind of damaging emissions. But, but I suppose my starting point that it's, it's, it's not enough just to do the wrong thing better. Uh, we're going to pollute less. We're going to emit less is, is fine. And, and as I say, I wouldn't discourage that. And there are people working very hard and innovating to reduce methane leakage, for example. But it, rem- it, isn't, it is still the wrong thing in, in, in scientific terms. And the question I suppose companies must ask themselves is, so what is the right thing? If, if, if we're, we're trying to do the wrong thing better, what is the right thing? And that's why I, that's where the kind of mind, mindset shift, I think, needs to come in. Uh, I'm not going to in any way suggest people should should slow down their efforts to reduce the emissions, the more the merrier. But not if it's a justification for keeping fossil fuel uh, in the system for longer than science tells us it needs to be there. And what about... You know, you started to talk about this from the from the banking and the insurance side of things, and also potentially from from the legal side of things. <clears throat> you, what, what ultimately do you see is is the risk of these companies not acting now? Um, I appreciate there's a science angle, which is we might not hit our targets, but there must be also risks to the companies themselves. Oh, I think existential risk. I, I think. I think society and politics will not tolerate damage to the environment. Uh, let's face it, the, the, the consequences of uh, changing climate are going to get more acute, bigger and stronger. You know, hotter hots, wetter wets, drier dries. Um, we're going to see stronger and, and worse impacts on humans. And they will say, stop this, make this things go away. Uh, and they will then turn around and say, well, who is to blame for it? That's why, you know, I've already mentioned the fact that the legal profession is now looking at the activities of, of companies emitting uh, and who have been emitting over you know, decades and enri- been, you know, perception is enriched themselves by doing so, they will be held to account. You know, New York is suing uh, for the cost of defending Manhattan against rising sea level. Uh, uh, a f- Peruvian smallholder farmer is suing RWE for, for their historic emissions affecting ice on the in the Peruvian Andes. So, so we're we're looking at significant and novel risks, I think, which are I'm hoping in boardrooms uh, where companies are looking now strategically at what their choices are and the price and the cost of doing nothing versus the price and cost of adapting and being part of the new economy, not the old one. And um, in terms of the you know, you, you talked about you know, someone like a BP uh, changing their mindset, and you know, you can see that you know, that's starting to filter through to some some of the businesses and, and the supply chain. Um, but what is it that some of these businesses can actually use as a guide to change? Because again, it is a very confusing space. You've had the Paris Agreement, and people talk about being Paris aligned. Um, You've also had all sorts of different transparency requirements come out, um, different targets being set, governments maybe running at different speeds uh, in terms of the ambition they're setting. What is it they should be doing here in terms of, you know, this is what I should follow because this is, this is going to allow me to get to a position that's aligned with where the world is going? David, I don't think it's any of that is... is um 
limited to oil and gas or energy businesses. I think every every business in the world now is expected to understand its impact on uh, climate and uh, the impact of a changing climate on their business. I think the, in- the investment community is now requiring it. The regulators are increasingly requiring transparency. Uh, TCFD, uh, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, is requiring increasingly reporting on those things. So I don't think any company uh, can ignore it. In fact, I think if, if any director of a company these days was to operate it, uh, ignoring these issues, they would probably be liable for, for you know, neglect of their duties, of their director's duties. So, so being Paris aligned is helpful in the sense that that's a global agreement. People can look at what two degrees or less than two degrees means. Uh, it will require them to look at what they do and how they do it and work out how they're going to do it in a in a net zero or a zero carbon world. And, and, and big financial investors like BlackRock are now asking directors of the companies they're invested in to show them their strategy related to climate and to show them how they're going to get to uh, zero a net zero world. So, so I think the pressure is on. I don't mean that in a bad way. I think it can be seen as a positive in the sense that it will drive innovation. Uh, and companies that don't uh, don't read the runes and don't understand and not aware of those issues will go to the wall. I mean, I think it's Mark Carney basically said firms that ignore the climate uh, issue will go bankrupt. Uh, and I think that's uh, it's blunt, but I think that's exactly right. Oil and gas, though, is is in a particular place because it is ultimately producing the, the hydrocarbons and the fossil fuels that are are producing uh, you know, when they're combusted, ultimately the carbon that is warming up our atmosphere, but is also the the lifeline of their business. So in one way, they're, they're stuck in between a sort of a rock and a hard place as to the pace of change and, and what they do. So hydrocarbons are not going to disappear overnight. And could you maybe just talk about you know, your view of the pace that these companies need to be changing at to, to, to give a sense to the uh, to the listener? Yeah. And I'd, I think to start with, David, you know, let's face it, oil, gas and before it coal were the drivers of economic uh, growth and and prosperity. Uh, and, you know, they're amazing materials. And and for a long time, they were they were used to drive economic growth in, in absolute ign- genuine ignorance of the impact it was having on the wider world. So so this idea that they're the problem is a relatively recent thing. And I think it hurts, uh, you know, if you're if being invested in the oil and gas world and, uh, and energy world for your for your career suddenly being the bad guys doesn't feel very nice fact remains the science is 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 undeniable and and i but and it does mean that these and these are some of the biggest and richest companies in the world they are uh, attracting significant attention the, the the upside is that they are often very well resourced financially they are uh, wealthy they have the opportunity to invest in the solution uh, but they haven't got long to do it. I mean, you know, you talked about timing. The timing is yesterday if we can if we can do it. You know, we're already seeing sea level rise. We're already seeing crop failures. We're already seeing dramatic uh, uh, temperature shifts and climate shifts. So, so the idea that we can make this transition last 20, 30, 40, 50 years doesn't stack up in terms of the science. And that, in the end, is what's going to drive things. It, it's It's worth noting that when COVID started last year, politicians and the prime minister made an absolute point of having scientists standing next door to them 
in the briefing room at number 10, and they're saying, look, these are difficult decisions, but we're being guided by the science here. Well, actually, climate change requires some difficult decisions, but politicians seem to have managed to avoid being guided by the science for the last 10 or 20 years as the urgency became more and more apparent. I think that will change. I think that the politicians are going to say, look, the science is absolutely clear here. There are things at risk which are too important and too expensive. We have to change. And whether they then use taxation, whether they use regulation, whether they use incentives for the alternatives, but they will get things changed. And they'll get things changed because we, I hope, as a population, will demand it. And that's a really interesting point as well. Thanks, Will. I think that the difference here, well, not what you're talking about, is around what I would call maybe the systemic change as to how we fundamentally change the structure of sort of incentivize certain types of energy or support certain types of energy and businesses uh, versus others to, to help transition our economies. Um, but what about what I would call individual action? So what is, is there an onus on us as individuals to, to do the right thing as well? And partly the reason I ask this is you know, a lot of discussion is on you know, not eating meat, uh, dry, you know, making the choice to buy uh, an EV and all those types of things. Where does that sit in your mind of systemic change versus individual action? Well, it's, it's, it's both and. I mean, that, that's, not, that's a kind of slightly cop-out answer to your question. <laughs> the system is definitely locked in at the moment uh, in terms of infrastructure, hard infrastructure and mindset to the exploitation of, of fossil fuels. And, and we've done very well on it, but that, that needs to change and the system needs to reflect that fact. It's not just oil and gas, as I've suggested. To give you an idea, the third largest emitter of greenhouse gas on the planet is the, is the global uh, cow herd, the herd of cows. It's, you know, cows produce more greenhouse gas impact than twice India. So, so there is going to need to be a change way beyond uh, just how we move about and how we you know, manufacture and distribute goods. It's going to be what we do and how we behave. And that will, to a large degree, be down to individual understanding and awareness as, as people, as responsible people. My, my, um, I, my experience, David, is that if, if I give a talk on the nature of the kind of global trends and what's going well and what's going badly, uh, and I, I start by asking people in the room, anybody got a child under the age of 10 or a grandchild or a nephew or a niece? And mo most people put their hands up. And I say, right, everything I'm going to tell you will happen in their lifetime. And I then go on to describe a set of pretty hairy outcomes if we don't significantly change the way we do things now. Looking out of the window here today, it's sunny, it's fine, we're comfortable, et cetera, et cetera. You kind of don't get the sense that we are sitting in a situation where unless we make significant change, and I don't think that has to be worse, I think it can be an improvement, we are going to see and we are going to leave as a legacy a significantly less stable and, and less comfortable world for our children. We'll be fine. Our children less so. Any grandchildren, absolutely less so. Okay, well, thank you, Will. Um, maybe the final question I have is around, yeah, if I was to be a cynic, and you, know, you and I both here sit in, sit in the UK, uh, you know, very much in what I would call the European context of things. And I've certainly seen the discussion move forward uh, significantly over the last 
well, arguably just the last year, but maybe the last couple of years in particular, um, it's always been there, but it's maybe more public uh, and, and more real in the last year or so. Um, uh, is this just a European story that we're talking about uh, because we started to accept the science more? We've had you know, Greta on our doorstep and, uh, uh, and people are talking about it more here, but actually in other parts of the world. And I'm thinking of, you know, Asia and, and Americas in particular. Um, this is less something that's on, you know, in the boardroom uh, and, and, and within government agendas. I think you're right. I, I think um, if you're confronting populations living in poverty who wish to have their lives improved, we all know that energy and access to energy is a fundamental part of growing uh, prosperity and well-being. So that's fine. The, the question is not do people need energy and do they need functioning economies? It's how are those economies going to be you know, run and where's the energy going to come from? I give you an example if we get it wrong. You know, if, if, we, if we warm the planet to an average of two degrees, uh, which, which we're more than heading for now, over time, between 75 and 100% of the population of Bangladesh now live on land that will be flooded, as an example. Climate impacts the poor much more than impacts the rich. That's an obvious thing. The rich can buy the air conditioning or buy their way out or move house. The, the poor can't. And, and between 25 and 50% of the populations of Australia and New Zealand currently live on land that will be flooded in a two-degree world. So, so these are absolutely enormous consequences, not just for uh, you know, the prosperous, but for the entire planet. And those who will suffer the most are those who are least able that they've got the quietest voice in international uh, negotiations. Even within their own country, they've often got the, the, the quietest voice and they will be impacted the most. So, you know, I, I don't think, and going back to your very first question, to, to move towards a more sustainable global society and economy, we are going to need to address a whole range of things, amongst which is the absolutely clear link between between greenhouse gas emissions and, and global health in every sense of the word. Uh, and, and that is why it, it often comes to, you know, climate often comes to the top of the list of things to do because these are things that we have a, a lever on. I think it, we should be looking at it positively. I think we should be seeing this as an opportunity to drive innovation, do things better. You know, electric cars are, are not like milk floats anymore. They are actually much, you know, they're fun to drive. So, and they're brilliant and they do lots of things right. I, I, I don't hold them out as the only answer, but the, I think it's an illustration that when we start to apply ourselves to getting things better, not doing the wrong thing better, but working out what the right thing is, then that's a huge opportunity. This is often a very gloomy agenda item. I think we should turn it around and say, clearly there are risks. Let's work out what the opportunities are. Great. Thank you, Will. Uh, I totally agree. It's you, know, you mentioned it right at the well, the halfway through, I guess, around mindset as well, and having the right mindset for this, and 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 turning it into a an opportunity is absolutely uh, the, the right thing. Um, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. But that was that was very insightful, and thank you so much for sharing your your thoughts with us today uh, on on sustainability, and particularly also that you know the role of of energy within that. So thank you again, Will. Thank you for asking me.